0: Good morning, good morning, good morning. Got a lot to celebrate this morning and a lot to get through in terms of John chapter 11, so we're just going to get right into it. A few weeks ago we had a little thing called Easter. Have you heard of the Easter before? No. Okay, good. All right, perfect. Uh, just It's cool. I just want to know we have zero response from the congregation this morning. I just helps me to know what I'm getting into. So thanks for that. I had Easter a couple weeks ago. We had about 2,000 adults, give or take, on our campus. We had several hundred kids. We had about a dozen people that indicated that they said yes to Jesus for the very first time. So that's really good. We can clap for that. One of those individuals was in our Alpha program this last fall, had opportunity to ask questions about life, faith, God, eternity, all that kind of stuff. But Easter Sunday, April 1st, was his day to say yes to Jesus and meet Jesus for the first time. We had uh, young people and children in our children's ministry say yes to Jesus. It was an absolutely fantastic day. Thank you for the ways that you invited friends and made Easter awesome. Uh, The following week, we had a great worship service. And the following week, April 15th, uh, we, we didn't have a worship service at all. Do you remember that? Okay, hey, by show of hands, because I just want us to kind of know if you got the message that we weren't having service via email, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, MySpace, do we do MySpace still? Uh, raise your hand if you got that message. One, two, three, go. Good. Good. we got some pretty good coverage in terms of not having a worship service last week. Uh, unfortunately, there was one family who had never been to church before that didn't get that message. And they showed up here on Sunday morning. And our executive director, Carmen, was here along with one of our volunteers extraordinaire, a guy named Jim Marshall. And that family came. The, one of the parents in that family didn't speak English really at all. She's in our ESL program. And they began to have a conversation. Hey, Sharif. Hey, buddy. Hi, Mary Lou. Uh, Sorry. Uh, Man, oh, man. I'm sorry I let you guys in on how distracted my brain is. It's like going 1,000 miles an hour. I'll get back to that story in a minute. Sharif and Mary Lou are international workers in Egypt, and uh, they never tell me when they're going to be here. Uh, But now they're here, and we just want to say hi. Good to see you. Good to see you. Everybody clap for Sharif and Mary Lou. You got to tell me so I don't stop in the middle of my sermon just to talk, have a personal conversation. How's life? What? Say what? We're surviving. You're surviving. Okay, good. Good. That sounds like they're doing really well, doesn't it? Yeah. Um. So anyway, that family came to church, and through their son, who spoke English, there was a conversation translated between Carmen and Jim, and also their mother, and she started asking about God, and about faith, and about church, and about Jesus, and they started to talk about the gospel, and then she said, how is it that I experience this, what you're talking about, this new life that Jesus offers? Well, you just pray and ask Jesus for forgiveness of your sins, and he comes into your life and leads your life, and she said, well, can I do that right now? And The next thing you know, they're kneeling in our foyer last Sunday, and she received Christ last Sunday. We didn't even have a worship service, right? It's extraordinary because uh, typically on a Sunday morning, uh, an individual wouldn't get that kind of time and attention, right? Uh, But my friend Vijay Krishnan, uh, some of you know Vijay. His dad Sundar preached here a few times while I was on sabbatical at the beginning of this year. I called Vijay, told him that story, and he said, Jesus just shut down the church for one Sunday so he could save that one lady. That's what happened. Uh, So that's a really cool thing that's going on here. And for those of you who have said yes to Jesus recently, Easter, even last week, uh, in the last few months even, uh, your next step is baptism. Uh, in fact, if you've said yes to Jesus and come to him in repentance and faith and not been baptized, bap- baptism is your next step. And we begin a baptism class on May 29th, and it's a three-week class. And then our next baptism Sunday is June 10th. It's going to be an awesome Sunday of testimony, of song, and baptism. We're really excited about it, looking forward to it. Baptism is not stupid. It's scary at all. It's simply an external representation of an internal reality. It's like a wedding ring. It's an external representation of something that's happened internally. And we would invite you to be a part of that baptism class. If you'd like to do that, if you'd like to be baptized, just outside those doors to the left, right after the service, there's a registration table there. Uh, Pastor Dave Lewis, who you met just a minute ago, will be out there. He'll help you get connected to that class. Just because you go to the class doesn't mean you're going to get baptized. So don't panic. It's just an informational class but it will prepare you to get baptized whenever you would like to do so. Sound good? Good. Okay, I told my wife uh, how I was going to introduce this sermon today, and she rolled her eyes. Uh, And rightly so, probably. But I told her I was going to introduce it by talking about one of my favorite celebrities on the planet. Celebrity that I like to talk about very, very often. In fact, a celebrity family. And I'll just be honest with you, I have to confess that I do love the Kardashians. I really do. I really do. I I like the whole, we don't do anything but we're rich and famous vibe that they've got going on. I I don't know how they've parlayed an entire career and got like lip gloss named after themselves. I mean, that is just, I mean, that's that's respectable. I mean, that's crazy what they've done. The, The other reason I love the Kardashians is because they provide great fodder for sermons. Just a couple weeks ago, Courtney Kardashian, one of the girls, posted this picture on Instagram. It was... Um, They're on her Snapchat. It was a picture of a pew on Easter Sunday, by the way. And they're either in Calabasas, California, or New York City. They attend churches in both places. Uh, In fact, the back of the pew looks a lot like the back of our seat backs here. Connect card, prayer requests, uh, something to give if you want to. And this is she and her boyfriend on on Easter Sunday. Uh, The next picture she posted is up here on the screen. And it's a devotional from a book by Sarah Young called Jesus Calling, which is actually a fantastic book if any of you have read it. Um, It's probably one of the only books that the Kardashians endorse. That I would also endorse. And just on the bottom here it says, Happy Easter. He is risen indeed. True. It's totally true. So the reason I use this example is to tell you that when we live in a culture where talking about Jesus' identity is dangerous, but talking about his activity is safe. Now, Jesus' identity is dangerous, but his activity is safe. Listen to me, here's what I mean by that. The Kardashians, when they post about Jesus, they're posting about his activity, what he has done. In fact, in this case, that he's risen from the dead. Or that he's given me all kinds of blessings. Hashtag blessed. You know what I'm talking about? Or, or that he's up to good things in the world. Or even you watch a football game, and somebody at the end of the football game, and what did you think of the game today, son? It's like, well, it was really great, and I just thank Jesus for all the blessings and the opportunity. Nobody like, bats an eye at that. That's fine, because we're talking about Jesus' activity. But the minute somebody says, first and foremost, I want to think Jesus Christ, he is my Lord and Savior. Everybody gets a little uncomfortable, do not they? Because now we're talking about his identity. We're talking about who he is, not just what he's done. I don't, I don't know what any of the Kardashians have done with the message of Jesus. I don't. I'm not passing judgment on them. I'm not saying that they have or haven't accepted Christ and come to him in repentance and faith. All I know is it's cool for like the most popular celebrities in the world famous for for what I don't know but they're famous for something to post on their Instagram and Twitter and Snapchat and whatever about Jesus activity why because that's safe but the minute we start talking about his identity who he is things get a little bit dangerous and here's the deal the book of John which we're studying right now John wrote this book in his 90s began to follow Jesus when he was 16 does not want to point us to Jesus Jesus' activity, he wants to point us to Jesus' identity. Understand that. He doesn't want to point us to Jesus' activity. He wants to point us to Jesus' identity. In other words, the question is not what has he done, but who is he? I mean, what has Jesus done? That's a pretty safe question, isn't it? WWJD, we're all wearing the bracelets, you know. But when we start talking about who is he, what's his identity, things get a little dicey. But all throughout the book of John, and specifically in John chapter 11, where we will be today, we learn that Jesus' divine activity always points to his divine identity. He doesn't just do miraculous stuff and do cool stuff and do divine stuff, you know, healing the sick and raising the dead and the blind to see because, you know, for kicks and giggles, because he thinks it's fun or because he wants somebody to be able to see. He does his divine activity in order to prove, vindicate, and affirm his divine identity. And that's John's goal and that's Jesus' goal that we would answer that question not what what has he done, but who is he? And that's the point of John chapter 11, the entire chapter. We're going to actually read it all this morning. So if you have your Bibles, open them up to John chapter 11. John is the fourth biography of the life of Jesus. It's called a gospel. That genre gospel did not exist before these four authors, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, wrote a gospel, and it hasn't been duplicated since. It's a genre of literature. It's basically a biography of the life of Jesus with an intention and a purpose, which we'll get to here shortly. And we'll begin in John chapter 11, verse 1, just to remind ourselves where we were last week. This is what John writes. He says, Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha... It was Martha who anointed, Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So let's remind ourselves the characters in our story, the people that we met. Martha, Mary, and Lazarus. These are siblings. Martha's the rule follower and servant. Mary's devoted to Jesus. And Lazarus is their brother and Jesus loves this family very, very much. John tells us all throughout chapter 11 how devoted he is, how much Jesus loves this family. In fact, their home in Bethany near Jerusalem was kind Jesus' home away from home throughout all four Gospels. And Lazarus gets sick. So the sister sent to him, is what the Bible says. So the sister sent to him, that's Jesus, saying, Lord, he whom you love, that's how we know Jesus loves him, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. Well, it did initially, but eventually, Lazarus is raised from the dead. It is for the glory of God that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. and We covered this last week, that Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead in order for us to acknowledge, perceive, understand the weight of the glory of God. And the weight of the glory of God has come down in Christ such that the teeter-totter sends us up. The weight of the glory has descended so that we may ascend. Let's keep reading. Now, Jesus loved Martha. And her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Question. If you had a dear friend, someone that you loved like crazy, and they got a snake bite, and you were the only one with antivenom, and someone sent to you and said, The person that you love the most in your life or one of the people you love the most in your life has been bitten by a snake. You're the only one with the anti-venom. Would you hustle or would you stay two days longer in the place where you were? Jesus stays two days longer in the place where he was. And This is fascinating to me. Because we know from the rest of the text that Jesus wasn't necessarily experiencing a lot of peace or a lot of positive emotions. Remember, John tells us that Jesus wept at the tomb of his friend. Negative emotion, at least what we understand to be a negative emotion of grief. He was experiencing some anxiety, John tells us, that he was feeling things down in his bones, actually in his bowels is what he says. He was feeling some anxiety, some stress, some worry, some negative emotion in his Humanness. Now, in that emotion, he did not sin, but in his humanness, he's feeling those things. And at the same time, he knows that God is in control. His heavenly Father is providential. Nothing has slipped through his sovereign fingers. He knows that his heavenly Father is good, and he knows his heavenly Father has got a plan. And his heavenly Father, for reasons that John does not disclose, we don't know why, has Jesus remained in the place where he was. And while he remained there, Lazarus died, not just got sicker, died. I don't know if you ever live in that tension like I do, like Jesus did. That tension of feeling negative emotions and having difficult experiences and the way your brain is working isn't just making it the 12 inches down to your heart. You ever feel that? And at the same time, you're telling yourself, I know God is good. I know he's in control. I know he's sovereign. Eyes up here on the screen. One of our elders defined faith this way just a few weeks ago, and I love it. He said it's the tension between what we know about God and what we are feeling, thinking, and experiencing. Do you see that? Faith is the tension. Between what we know about God and what we are thinking, feeling, and experiencing. See, Jesus was feeling and experiencing anxiety, stress, worry, even grief. And at the same time, knowing that God is good enough to have a plan, even if his plan doesn't make sense, even if he's asking me to stay here for another couple of days, before I go to the bedside of my sick friend, even if it doesn't make sense, I'm going to do it because what I know about God trumps what I feel. Some of you just needed to hear that this morning. What you know about God trumps how you feel. See, here's what's fascinating about Jesus in this passage. This is a little bit of a detour, and we're going to come back to activity and identity. But Jesus has the faith to wait for God's best, He does. Instead of rushing to Lazarus' side and healing him from sickness, he waits, Lazarus dies, and then he raises him from the dead. Now, which one of those things is cooler? Healing someone that's sick or raising someone that's been in the tomb four days? That's not a trick question. Raising someone from the dead, lots cooler, right? God gets a lot of glory. God gets a lot of attention, so much attention that it's 2,000 years later and we're still reading about it now. Jesus had the faith to wait To stay. We don't know why, but we know he was led of God to do so. Faith to wait for God's best. Now, you might be looking up here and go, okay, Jesus had the faith to wait for God's best. I get that. All right. He waited and then he went. Then he raised Lazarus from the dead. I get it. How does that apply to me? Watch this. Go back one. Single people. Single people. You with me? Because some of you are settling for God's second best right now. If you're with them, do not nudge them. (laughs) Be a normal human being and send them a text message later. (laughs) Uh, People who have an opportunity to get into business with someone that you know is not a good idea, where they're cutting corners and doing stuff, wait on God's best. But how am I going to feed my family? Trust God and wait for God's best. Because what he might do on the other side of your waiting could be as miraculous as raising Lazarus from the dead. I got a friend that waited a very, very long time to get married. Because she always knew that whoever she was dating, was, she was settling, she was settling, she was settling. If she got married to them and settled down, she would be settled down with settling. That's not good. In her 40s, she got married to an, an extraordinary human being. They got a couple of kiddos because she waited for God's best. I know it's hard, but learn from Jesus and wait for God's best. Let's keep reading. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. So remember where Jesus is. He's over here at Bethany beyond the Jordan. This is a province called Perea. And when he crosses over the Jordan River, he'll be in Judea and head to uh, Jeru- eventually Jerusalem. But right now, just Bethany in Judea where Mary and Martha and Lazarus live. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, next slide, uh, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? So they look at Jesus and go, Wait. There's a bunch of people in Judea who want to kill you. Like, this is not a good idea, Jesus answered. Are there not 12 hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, Jesus is using things that we know really well, day, night, light, dark, to help us understand spiritual truths that we don't know all that well. And I can't get into the spiritual truth that he's communicating this morning. We don't have time. But you can, this week, when you read John chapter 11 and use some commentaries and stuff. Get into it. It's great. But I'm not going to tell the answer now. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Just pay real close attention, and you'll see that the scripture is funny. Remember, I always tell you point out stuff that's funny in the Bible? You'll see it on your own this time. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. <laughs> I just could imagine like Jesus going, I'm Jesus. I know not really falling asleep. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. He's just having a little nap. That's what they thought Jesus meant. Then Jesus told them plainly with a sigh, I assume. Lazarus has died. Jesus had to tell them straight out, literally, Lazarus has died. Now, I want to point out one little kind of Bible study tool, something to keep in the back of your mind as you read the Bible on your own, and give you a little bit of a glimpse into the series that we're going to start next week. We're starting a series next week called the B-I-B-L-E. Anybody remember that song from Sunday School? Yes, that's the book for me. Yeah, there's a lot of things wrong with that song. We'll talk about them in the series, all right? But, But here's what happens in this passage. The disciples make the mistake that taking Jesus seriously and taking Jesus literally are the same thing. They're not the same thing. We always take Jesus seriously, but we don't always take him literally. Because if we take him literally, when he's meant to be taken metaphorically, we end up looking like a moron, like the disciples look like right here. Like, oh, he's going to wake up from his nap. Just a Bible study tool. Don't confuse taking Jesus seriously with taking Jesus literally. When Jesus says, I'm a door, he doesn't mean he's a door. Like, you ever be you're around those people that use the word literally just for emphasis? Like, we had such a great weekend, I was literally soaring. No, you weren't. Not unless you were on a plane, you weren't. That's not how you use the word literally. I don't know, that has nothing to do with the sermon. I just don't like those kind of people that use the word literally incorrectly, all right? But don't confuse taking Jesus seriously with taking Jesus literally. There are Bible passages that you can mix up all the time and mess up all the time and misapply all the time because you're taking Jesus literally and he doesn't need me. He doesn't intend to be taken literally in the same way that he doesn't intend to be taken literally here when he says Lazarus has fallen asleep. What he means is Lazarus has died. And then Jesus says, and for your sake, now keep keep going. Here's here's where we're going to get into it. I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Why is Jesus glad that he wasn't there? So that you may believe. See, that's the key word there. I am glad I wasn't there. I'm glad even that Lazarus died because there's a purpose behind it. And the purpose is so that you may believe. Again, spoiler alert, Jesus is going to show up at the tomb of Lazarus, say, Lazarus, come out, and this man is going to walk out of the tomb with grave clothes still on now after four days in the tomb. And Jesus is doing that so that you may believe. Believe. He's telling us the purpose. In other words, Jesus' miraculous activity exists so that his miraculous identity is confirmed. Do you get it? See, John doesn't want us to know, or Jesus doesn't want us to know, that Jesus could do some cool things, but that he is someone. You see the difference? We're not talking about his activities. We're talking about his identity and his activity exists so that his miraculous identity is confirmed. We'll talk about why this matters in a minute, but we got to get it home now. We'll talk about the implications. See, John's question for us is not what has he done, but who is he? He's going to raise Lazarus from the dead so that you might believe. So Thomas called the twin said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Courageous uh, remark, I think. Now when Jesus... Uh, Came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. It's significant because the religious leaders and the teachers of the law would say that after the third day in the tomb, the spirit would separate from the body. This was kind of common consciousness or collective consciousness at this time. So on the fourth day, Lazarus was like beyond help because the spirit had left the body. At least that's what everyone believed. And Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. This was custom. Everybody would converge on their house and they would all sit in the home for a specified period of time and grieve and mourn the loss of this person. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, broke the rule. The rule follower broke the rule like that. She went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. And Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, My brother would not have died. Probably true. Probably true. Probably true. But Jesus waited, didn't he? He waited. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, that sounds really good. But I would submit to you this morning that I think Martha is just kind of repeating or regurgitating a spiritual platitude that she doesn't really mean it. This is kind of bumper sticker theology. Anybody ever done that before? You're facing like a very, very difficult time in your life and you say something or think something that you don't necessarily believe in your heart, but it is in your head. Like your life has come completely off the rails and you do the, for I know the plans God has for me to give me a hope and a future. Because it's on a magnet on my refrigerator. You ever do that before? I think this is a little bit of where Martha's at. She's saying the right thing. I'm not getting on Martha's case here. She's saying the right thing. She's like, ah. yeah, Jesus says he'll rise again. Martha could have gone, like now? Like now? No, no, on the last day, I get that. But, but I'm just telling myself to comfort myself. I'll, t- I'll show you why in a minute. I think it's just a spiritual platitude. Keep reading. Jesus said to her, I am. The resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is the critical claim. This is fifth, the fifth of seven I am statements in the book of John. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Understand that Jesus is not making an I can or an I will statement. He's making an I am statement. Do you see it? He's not talking about his activity here. I can give you life. I will raise him from the dead. No, no, no. I am. That's who I am. If you want those things, come to me. Don't ask me to do things. Just come to me. And the reason I do things is just to show you, to vindicate, to prove, to affirm that I am the resurrection and the life. And then he asked Martha this critical question that Martha is faced with, that Peter was faced with, who do you say that I am, that Courtney Kardashian is faced with, that you are faced with, and that I am faced with. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe your identity, not your activity now, that you're the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You see, this is the very purpose of the book of John. He tells us in John chapter 20, verse 21, that we would believe that Jesus is the Christ and the Son of God. Not that he can do some good stuff in our, our life, but he is our very life. He's the Christ and the Son of God. So Jesus, in order to vindicate his identity and prove his identity, he does a really cool activity. Now watch. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, Lazarus, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Now, here's why I think Martha's statement earlier on was a spiritual platitude. It's because of this word, odor, right here. It really is. Stick with me. Because when Jesus says, roll away the stone, if Martha really believed in her heart, she might have said, oh my gosh, here we go. You guys, this is it. He's the resurrection and life. He's about to raise my brother from the dead. But no, she doesn't. She says, if you roll away that stone, it's going to waft. Okay? And, and check this out. This word, odor is not a polite word in the original language. Like it's translated odor in the ESV, but that's really polite, right? Like if someone, you know, like you're out with people and you smell something, like, dude, did you cut one loose? You know, you don't say that, you're like, oh, there's an odor. <laughs> See, that's, that's polite. Or in the King James Version, it's he stinketh. Very polite, right? <laughs> But that's not that word in the original language. I want to tell you a story to help illustrate what that word is in the original language. I was returning from Turkey one time. I was on a short-term mission trip supporting some international workers in Turkey. I had been there two weeks. I was completely exhausted. And I get on the plane, flying coach, obviously, because you don't fly first class to mission trips. I've never flown first class. But if anybody would like to take me somewhere on a first class (laughs) trip, that's beside the point. So I'm on this plane And for those of you who fly a lot, you you know what I'm talking about. People start getting on the plane and all the seats start filling up, except for one. And it's right next to me. And I'm going, oh, Jesus, if this seat stays empty, this miraculous activity will confirm your miraculous identity for me. I mean, this is... (laughs) This is just going to be extraordinary. So the plane fills up. There's no the whole plane's full up, and, and and there's one seat left, and they're about to close the cabin doors. And just as they close the cabin doors, a dude runs onto the plane. And when I say dude, I mean big dude. And not like big like fat, like big like he probably was about six five, three and a quarter, something like that. Six foot five, three hundred twenty five pounds, big man. And he's wearing a full gray sweatsuit, like zip-up, hoodie. And he has sweated through every part of that suit. You know what I mean? Just dripping. So he's been running through the airport to catch this flight. And I, I look at the seat next to me. I'm like, God, I am so mad. Oh, my gosh. I'm mad at you. I'm mad at this guy. I'm mad at the pilots. I'm mad at everybody. This dude comes over, and here I am sitting in the middle seat, right? And he's got to load his stuff into the overhead compartment. And I'm going, there is an odor. (laughs) (laughs) Homeboy, you stinketh. Okay? Now, the story does not end there. This guy sits down. I, I kid you not, this is exactly what happened. He did not say hello, he didn't introduce himself, he didn't say anything. He turned around, looked at me, and he said this, Hey buddy, I just want to apologize in advance because I've been in India for the last two months and my stomach is messed up. <laughs> There has been an odor. (laughs) Watch what Jesus says. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? See, if you put your active trust in me, you're going to see the glory of God. So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you've heard me. I know that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may, what? Believe. Place their active trust in me, who I am, not what I've done that you sent me so this is great when he said these things he cried out with a loud voice really simple no abracadabra Lazarus come out then Lazarus came out his hands and feet bound with linen strips grave clothes still on him and his face still wrapped with with a burial shroud with a cloth Jesus said to him unbind him and let him go I never, this never dawned on me until just now when I was reading it. But Jesus said to them, would you, how would you feel if you were one of them? Unbind him and let him go. No, I'm not getting close to that. I mean, there's some people like that risk averse, you know, they're like, no, you go. You, I think he meant you. And there's some people, some people are like, this is great, man. They're like, unwrap this guy. Let's see what's under there. I'm like, I don't want any part of that. But they unbound him and let him go. Here's what we're going to do real quickly before we finish John chapter 11 because we do need to finish the chapter because it's going to transition in John chapter 12. We have talked about this all morning that Jesus' miraculous activity confirms, affirms, and vindicates his miraculous identity. Let me tell you why that matters so incredibly much to you right here, right now because worship is based on identity, not activity. You do not worship anything or anyone for what they've done. You worship someone for who they are. I've used this example before. I think it's a good example. But I love my dog. She's almost 11. If my house was on fire and my dog uh, realized that I had passed out because of smoke inhalation and she grabbed me by my collar and drug me from my upstairs bedroom down the stairs, unlocked the door on her own without any opposable thumbs, and drug me out into the lawn, passed out completely, and saved my life from a fire, I might do a lot of things for my dog. I might give her a special bed. I might give her special treats. I might let her sleep with me instead of in her crate. More accurately, I would probably let her sleep with Amy and I would sleep on the floor because that would be preferable for both of them, probably. But you know what I would not do? I wouldn't worship my dog. Even that's a really cool activity. She's not worthy of my worship. I would not write songs like, How Great is My Dog? Sing with me how great is my dog. And all see how great, how great is my dog. (laughs) You know, I know what he's saying with me. Because that's stupid. Right? Doesn't matter how great the activity is. Worship is not based on activity, it's based on identity. So when we say Jesus has done cool things, that doesn't lead us to the foot of the cross in humble worship. That's not what happens. When we say, Jesus, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. All of a sudden, this happens because of this affirmation. Self is based on identity and activity. Self, an accurate view of self, an accurate view of others. Uh, how we understand ourselves in the picture of God's grand redemptive plan is based on Jesus' identity. If we see it through the lens of Jesus' activity, we don't see ourselves and others accurately. But if we see ourselves through the lens of Jesus' identity, who he was, we see ourselves and others accurately. Amy pointed this out to me in a book that she's reading. I think it's brilliant. John Ortberg quotes this study that happened in Beijing. They took uh, Christians and non-Christians and put them in a room and asked them to make a Or pass a judgment on or talk to them about or evaluate the activities of people. And what the researchers found was the Christians were using an entirely different part of their brain to make those evaluations. Can you believe that? Entirely different part of their brain. Why? Because if I see Jesus as the Lamb of God come to take away the sins of the world, all of a sudden I don't want to judge somebody else. If I see myself saved and redeemed by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone, adopted into his family, I see myself as a son of the living God who didn't have to perform to get it. And neither do others. See, when we see Jesus for who he is, not for what he's done, it changes the way we see ourselves and others. Now, authority is based on identity, not activity. Did you know that? Authority. Why why does the PM have authority? Because of what he's done? Nope. Because of who he is. Why does the President of the United States have authority? Because of what he's done? Don't answer that. (laughs) Nope. Because of who he is. Why do the police have authority? Because of what they've done? Nope. Because of who they are. I've worked in a number of environments. Uh, I worked at Applebee's one time for a year. It was like purgatory. It was like Dante's Fifth Circle. It was horrible. Uh, I worked at Abercrombie and Fitch. And in multiple situations, I actually thought that I was smarter than the manager. I probably was at some point. There were probably other people in the room that were smarter than the manager. Did we have any authority? No. Nope. nope, not even a little bit. Why? Because authority is based on identity. I'm the manager. I have the authority. (laughs) Not because of your activity. Same with Jesus. If Jesus did cool stuff, even raise somebody from the dead. Even raise somebody from the dead. He doesn't have authority. But if he is someone, oh, man, he's got all the authority, doesn't he? How about this relationship is based on identity, not activity? Why? Because you don't have a relationship with things someone has done. You have a relationship with someone. I wrote down 25 of these. I'm not kidding. I wrote down 25 of them. I just shared with you four because I don't have time. Do the work on your own. What does it mean for you? When we affirm that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, believe that and trust that, how does it change the way you work, the way you play? How does it change your marriage? How does it change your finances? How does it change the way you spend your time? What implications does it have for you today? Let's finish the text. John chapter 11. And I've got one more closing comment, and we'll be done. John writes this. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and seen what he did, believed in him. Pretty cool, right? But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs, and his activity is affirming his identity. If we let him go on like this. Next slide. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. The Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, not a good guy, by the way, not really a God-fearer, but he was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people than the whole nation should perish. Now watch this. This is fascinating. Because Caiaphas, who's not a good guy, Just said, one man is going to die for the whole people. Did you catch it? And if you're a Christian, you know that it's in a couple weeks. One man is going to die for all the people. Now watch this. Listen, he did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's you and me. God using a bad man as his voice, as his megaphone, as his mouthpiece. You know why? Because the kings of the earth are like rivers in the hands of the Almighty. So from that day on, the Jews made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region in the wilderness to a town called Ephraim. And there he stayed with the disciples Before then, Jesus is going to be anointed by Mary in John chapter 12, and then he will wind up in Jerusalem for his final time, and that's where we will pick up our study in the Gospel of John. When we return to it, in the meantime, we're going to do a study called the B-I-B-L-E that I'm really, really, really excited for. We start it next week. What's in the Bible? How to read the Bible? How to study the Bible? How can we trust the Bible? How to navigate the Bible? It's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Hey, Opa! Out of close, last time, here it is. The question for us is not what has he done, but who is he? Who is he? If you don't know Jesus, this is the critical question. If you're searching for Jesus, this is the critical question. Not what has he done, but who is he? For those in the room who uh, are followers of Christ, it's an opportunity for us just to reaffirm, Jesus, I, I trust you because of who you are, because of who you are, and what you've done has pointed me to who you are but I trust you for who you are and I worship you for who you are. Let's pray as we close. God, thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning, to worship you, to hear from you, to hopefully have our affections for you stoked and our hearts drawn near to you. God, remind us today that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Draw us near to you that we might place our active trust in you And respond in worship. Even in this next song, crying out that we need you, God. We need you. Every hour, we need you. Help us, oh God, not just to get caught up in what you've done, but to meditate on, reflect upon who you are. In Christ's name, the people of God, together said, amen. Let's stand together as we close the song.